Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. All right, uh, good morning uh, or good afternoon, depending on what time zone you're in. Uh, where I'm at, it's, it's still quite early, uh, still dark, in fact. Uh, but today on the podcast, we have Abby Zeef, uh, who works at the International Committee for the Red Cross out of uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And so that's why I say afternoon, because it's afternoon for her. But uh, anyhow, she is the uh, legal advisor at the uh, Arms and Conduct of Hostilities Unit at the ICRC's legal division. And so uh, we're going to talk today about urban warfare and sieges, uh, more, I think, from a theoretical standpoint than than an applied standpoint for the most part. Uh, But we wanted to talk, or I wanted to talk with her about this because we've had... uh, uh, experience working together in the past. We've uh, participated in a conference together at uh, Harvard University uh, that was really, really insightful on sieges right at the beginning of uh, February, or it was, I guess, March, April 2022, right, right after Russia had invaded Ukraine. And so it was very timely. And so uh, I really appreciated Abby's perspective on things. I've heard her on a couple of other podcasts too. So I think it's uh, her perspective and her outlook is very important and her knowledge just on the on the rules of war and uh, international humanitarian law. So for that reason, uh, I, I want to have her on the podcast. So, Abby, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Amos. Um, so if you would, Abby, before we get started, just give a brief overview on what the ICRC is and what your what its mandate is. Yeah, no, uh, no worries. Um, So the International Committee of the Red Cross, where we were established uh, in 1863, um, we are a neutral, uh, independent and impartial humanitarian organization uh, operating worldwide in in more than 100 countries, uh, also um, helping 
people that are affected by conflict and, and armed violence. And, and in doing that, uh, a big part of our role is promoting um, the laws that protect victims of, of war. So, you know, we call it international humanitarian law. Uh, you know, in many militaries, we'll call it LOAC um, or the Law of Armed Conflict. Uh, and so um, in terms of, you know, where our mandate comes from, you know, we are not part of the, the UN. Uh, we are sort of a very separate organisation and our mandate actually comes from uh, the Geneva Conventions themselves uh, and the additional protocols, uh, as well as the statutes of the Red Cross uh, and Red Crescent movement. So um, we are part of, the ICRC is part of a broader um, international uh, uh, movement, uh, or an umbrella um, under the umbrella of it, and so we work alongside um, and very closely with uh, the um, na with national societies, in particular countries where we operate, who are often you know the first responders um, in, in armed conflict. So, for folks that aren't aware, the the ICRC also, if you go on their website, the, it has a it has all the answers to all your questions about international humanitarian law uh, in terms of like what does the law actually say. And there's just a, a plethora of very, very useful information, both from the scholarly, scholarly side, also from the analyst side, also from the military practitioner side. So if you're looking for good uh, information on what are the rules of war, uh, using air quotes on that phrase there, um, and just a lot of good case study uh, work, the ICRC's website provides a lot of that. So with that, today we're going to jump into a, a discussion on urban warfare and sieges, I think, in particular to a degree. Um, and so urban warfare, we're going to talk about that because it's become, again, it's, it's quite prevalent today. And there's a lot of several good reasons for why it's become so prevalent today um, and the challenges associated with that, not necessarily from the military side. Uh, but from the civilian and protection of civilian side, which is where Abby's uh, expertise comes in today. So with urban warfare, I think um, I'll, I'm just going to throw a couple ideas out and then I'm going to pass it over to you, Abby. But urban warfare, you know, Tony King, Anthony King's written quite a bit um, of really good work on why urban warfare is becoming, has become, is so prevalent today and why it's going to be even more prevalent in the future. And there's really, a, I think, two big conditions that Tony points out that are that are useful uh, to highlight for our discussion uh, this morning. One is one is that the size of military forces is constricted. They've gotten quite smaller, uh, you know, for, since the end of uh, the Second World War, for example. And so a lot of urban warfare wasn't really noted during the Second World War, as, as Tony points out, because forces were so big that urban environments were just consumed in a small part of a bigger front that militaries operated on. And so you didn't necessarily hear about these these big urban battles unless that urban battle was the operation itself right like stalingrad or leningrad or something like that there's that that component right and then the other component is that uh, cities are getting larger right so you've got smaller forces and larger cities and those two things work together almost in tandem with one another to have this reciprocal reciprocal effect uh creating uh urban warfare being uh what it is today uh in terms of its prevalence and whatnot is there anything else on your side, Abby, that you've seen that uh, relates to the contribution of urban warfare becoming so popular? And then what are some of the things 
from the civilian side that you think are important to note about urban operating environments that don't necessarily apply to, say, fighting out in the open desert? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think I can add much more um, beyond what you what you already said, uh, Amos, in terms of the reasons why um, fighting comes to, to the city um, a lot of the time. I mean, it's, it's you know, as you said, yeah, demographics, um, you know, the strategic value of cities, uh, and, you know, the size, uh, you know, strategies that, that end up drawing fighting into an urban area um, of which, you know, that, that has to do also with force, uh, force size, um, you know, combat density, uh, like sort of Anthony, the point Anthony King makes um, in his excellent book and, and, you know, in line with a number of the, the points you've made in some of your great stuff that, are, that I've read. Um, I mean, in terms of the, you know, civilian harm that's caused, uh, you know, by fighting in cities, well, there is a lot of it. It's, yep. It is one of the most devastating, um, you know, forms of fighting for civilians, uh, of course, um, it's it's also the same. That's also the case for combatants. Um, but you know, from our side, you know, particularly um, in the last uh, few decades, you know, we've we've continued to see urban warfare cause uh, you know widespread death, uh, injury, and destruction. Um, you know, whether it be um, you know, we see a lot of the use of heavy explosive weapons in, in urban areas, uh, which can, which causes significant harm. Uh, we particularly when it comes to besieged urban areas, we you know we see um, challenges in terms of getting um, commodities into the area that that you need for civilians to to survive essentially. Um, you know, it's sort of we whether it be from from the bombardments themselves, but you know also your checkpoints and restrictions of movement, counter mobility activities, you know restrictions on humanitarian aid, just some examples. Uh, some of the other uh, big challenges in terms of when, when fighting comes to city has to do with the severe disruptions to essential services um, that that happens. So, you know, we think of electricity, healthcare, uh, water and sanitation and you know, food production and distribution as some examples. And the disruptions can come from for a range of reasons, uh, you know, one example being obviously damage to the critical infrastructure that's needed to um, for essential service uh, delivery. Uh, we also see essential services being deliberately denied as part of a, a belligerence warring strategy. Um, there are also challenges we face when you know, essential service personnel are either harmed or prevented from doing their job because without them uh, we can't we don't have anybody to repair or maintain. Um, the infrastructure that's needed for uh, essential service delivery. And then the other big challenge is, you know, a lack of having the, the spare parts and consumables that you need to maintain um, critical infrastructure uh, and, and getting them into the area. So um, that's a huge challenge. Uh, and then, you know, I think you said on a, on a podcast episode, uh, I can't remember which one, you said the first rule of war uh, for is, don't, is you know, don't die. Yeah. And, yeah. and in that sense, the same goes for civilians. You know, we have uh, civilians that are forced to make really impossible choices uh, with, you know, the little food and water and health care that they have available, um, particularly when urban fighting becomes quite protracted. And, uh, you know, they have to, you know, they will face, um, you know, consequences that are often cumulative and long lasting and, and not always visible. So, you know, particularly in, in, in besieged and encircled urban areas, uh, you know, we hunger, um, dehydration, illness and disease, uh, you know, and, and death, uh, obviously. So 
Um, but when when we talk about, you know, I think you've mentioned it before and you've put it in your writing uh, in, in a number of your publications that um, you know, when it comes to urban sieges, there are consequences that occur beyond the besieged area itself. And I think you said something to me in Cambridge a couple of years ago that really stuck with me because I think it summed it up perfectly. Uh, I think you said, like the squeezing of a balloon, a siege in one location redistributes misery and suffering to other locations. And in that sense, you know, in urban areas when, you know, we see um, you know, mass displacement from those areas, uh, people are, kind of, uh, you know, they lose their homes and their livelihoods, they're uprooted from their communities, so they are often forced to sort of go to other areas or um, and depend upon host families and communities that, you know, uh, at a time when those hosts themselves are already being impacted by the conflict, which is something that we saw, you know, that was, for example, if we look at Mosul, you know, there were large influxes of people from urban areas um, that, you know, that exacerbated already pre-existing problems um, in the neighbourhoods that they were displaced to. Yep. Uh, and I think, you know, and the other thing to bear in mind is that, you know, once um, the fighting is over, those that are displaced from uh, urban areas are often pre prevented from returning. And that's sometimes for years. Uh, it can be, you know, often to, you know, the explosive remnants of war or unexploded ordnance that's left over, you know, a, a real, uh, you know, lack of essential services or an inability to restore them, um, you know, to an acceptable level, uh, or they just simply have no homes to go to. So... And I think the other import, really important point to bear in mind is, you know, for when it comes to uh, you know, urban sieges in particular, you know, no two sieges look the same yeah. and, the, and the humanitarian conditions themselves are going to depend on a range of factors. And that can, you know, depend on the intensity and the location of the fighting, um, the nature of the, the movement restrictions that are being imposed upon civilians, uh, what kind of coping mechanisms they have available themselves, um, and then the extent to which humanitarian aid can actually enter into the area, uh, as well as things like prevalence of, you know, smuggling and bribery. So there's a lot of humanitarian concerns, uh, and often those consequences really do exceed that which humanitarian action alone uh, can fix, which is why we continue to advocate for preventing the harm uh, in the first place as much as you can. As you were talking through that, and then your last point specifically also makes me uh, want to ask this follow-up question to what, what you just described. So how does, have you seen anything uh, that says that precision strike, precision strike strategies are actually any, any better quantitatively than non-precision strike strategies at preventing civilian casualties, the destruction of essential services, et cetera? Yeah, it's, um, it's a big question, Amos, and I know that you've, uh, I think you wrote a very interesting piece on the precision paradox. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, precision guidance is, sort of, is undoubtedly an improvement over inaccuracy. Um, you know, from a from a risk assessment perspective, of course, you know, PGMs are, are going to be a better option than unguided weapon systems. Um, and in some cases, if those PGMs are available for you to use in certain circumstances, using them might be actually a legal obligation to do so. Um, but at the same time, you know, simply using precision weapons doesn't automatically ensure uh, more limited damage uh, per se, you know. So, um 
they, they just minimise the area that's at risk of being impacted by a munitions direct effects. So, you know, from a legal perspective, not every precision attack is going to comply with IHL um, and they don't eliminate the dangers for civilians, um, you know, completely in urban areas. You know, mm-hmm. it, that's going to depend on, you know, the size of the bomb you're using, yep. you know, how accurate, you know, the type of intelligence that you're using in terms of, you know, um, what you're targeting. I mean, one of the biggest challenges target misidentification, uh, as I'm sure you know, you know, inadequate um, collateral damage assessments. Uh, You know, it's the actual, it it also depends on the nature of the target. You know, we we talk and you mentioned, you know, you asked me just before about, you know, critical infrastructure. Um, You know, even if there's certain infrastructure that um, might be targeted because it's being used by, uh, by the enemy, those the direct and the, the indirect effects that can um, yeah, reverberate uh, on, for civilians is is significant. You know, mm-hmm. we can think of things like if you target energy infrastructure. You know, energy infrastructure is essential for the functioning of other um, critical services. So, and uh, and often, um, you know, in many of the cities where we operate, there are not a lot of redundancies built into energy infrastructure. So oh, if yeah. you go after that, yeah. if you go after that, um, you know, the civilian harm uh, risks uh, are huge. So I guess, um, you know, and there are a number of other factors that can that can impact, you know, how effective PGM is and the, and the risks of civilian harm. But yes, I guess the question that you're asking me is really, you know, does it make a difference if you use precision weapons across an urban battle space if at the end the end result is you're destroying the the entire urban area and i mean yeah it's a really important um thing to be considering you know it's uh just it's it's not going to reduce the civilian harm uh if if you just if you're using precision across an entire battle space it's also very expensive um and uh, you know, in the end, the the consequences we're left with look very similar to what you see in uh, you know in the Second World War, and um, the, and the aftermath of that uh, is significant, and you know, can take years to decades to to rectify. I, I agree with you. I think that it's also uh, there's an interesting dichotomy perhaps emerging now too with PGMs, um, because to this point, PGMs and precision strike really. You know, if we're talking about true contemporary PGMs, like they've only really been used in this this counterinsurgency, you know, post 9-11 type scenario where it was essentially chasing individual bad guys or small groups of bad guys and uh, targeting targeting that way and using precision strike in that that capacity, which, as we've seen, even at the, you know, the tail end of the war in Afghanistan, um, we, we didn't always get right. And uh, we're transitioning from that to how do you use PGMs in this large-scale combat operations type scenario. And I don't think that we fully appreciate that. I think Mosul, perhaps, and a lot of these uh, battles in Syria and battles in the Philippines, you know, and to a lesser degree, what we've seen in Ukraine, provide a glimpse into what that might look like. But as you said, you know, the costs are going to be cost prohibitive, cost prohibitive, and so using those on a wide scale capacity in the future in a large scale combat operations type scenario, I think is something that'll be interesting to see how that plays out because I don't know that um, the industrial base for anybody is going to be uh, well suited to use those in the same way that they've been used before during that post nine eleven period. So 
I think that's uh, something that will will significant you know play a significant role in how civilians and critical infrastructure are addressed in uh, future future wars. There was something else on that too that um, I think was imp- is important to note too when we talk about civilian casualties and, and and services and whatnot. And that's you know talking again about this this dichotomy between uh, what did I say the counterinsurgency type approach and then the large scale combat operations type approach. In that counterinsurgency type approach, what you have is PGMs chasing almost chasing uh, combatants around the battlefield, whereas in the large-scale combat operations scenario, I just, like I said, I think it'll be interesting to see how those two things split. But at the end of the day, I don't know that uh, it would be interesting if there was a way, and I guess maybe this is for the people out there that make war games and simulations and whatnot, if there's like a rewind button in the simulations to where you can put in like a PGM based strategy and then replay it with a non-PGM based strategy and then look at the differences and how that plays out. But moving on from that, um, I, so you've, you've mentioned sieges a good bit here, and I think we'll use uh, the rest of our time here to talk a bit about sieges. And so one of the important things that I think to note <clears throat> for all the listeners, and I've mentioned this before on this podcast, is that uh, sieges aren't, so sieges are a thing, right? We're doing them again, we being just everybody, you know, armed conflict in general, sieges are a thing that have, have been recurrent, uh, especially in the post, and, and I've I've done uh, some analysis on the post-Cold uh, War period. In the post-Cold War period, sieges are actually very prevalent. And so um, it's important to note that sieges, A, aren't a, a way of warfare, uh, like a this is how you know we fight. Uh, we fight purely in sieges, and this is how we do it. Sieges are a tool, right? They're a thing that somebody does, an actor does, uh, based off a variety of conditions. And sometimes it's not even something that they do based off uh, choice. It's almost just they kind of accident their way into it based off an emerging situation. You either, you know, you find yourself encircled in a city or you find yourself encircling somebody as a response to some sort of stimulus encircling them in a city. And so, um, you know, again, as I've mentioned before, looking at the data, and I'll ask you, Abby, if you've seen any other data on this, um, because I'm happy to... (laughs) share data if possible, even though I don't think I could, my, my, my data set was too big to share with you, but um, I, you know, I accounted for 60 sieges in the post-Cold War period up to today. That doesn't count for what's going on in Gaza right now, just because I had kind of froze it, that data set in place as I started working on uh, getting the, the papers and uh, a chapter in my book tied to that as well. But 60 uh, sieges in the post-Cold War period, couple of points that I want to note on that um, real quick, too, is that overall what I found in, when looking at sieges is that 60% of the time of those 60 sieges, the aggressor won, the defender won 30% of the time, and then, you know, that, that remaining 10% split across different, uh, different breakdowns of uh, actor types. And then uh, from there, within that data also, I broke it into four, four time periods, right? Zero uh, days to one month. Uh, and then one month to six month time period, then six month to 12 month, and then beyond a year, right? And so within that, um, there was some interesting stuff that, that, that emerged as well. So most of the sieges actually fell within that one to six month time period, but then the second highest frequency was beyond a year. And then within that, uh, 90, so on that zero to one month scale, 90% of the time the aggressor won, and that one to six month scale, 57% of the time the aggressor won. But the interesting thing that I found 
uh, that I wasn't expecting is in that, that six to 12 month time period, the defender wins 55% of the time, which I thought was quite, uh, um, unique. And I, I wasn't expecting to find that at all. And then beyond 12 months, 61% of the time, uh, the aggressor wins. And so I think that's important to understand, not because it's just cool data to have, but because it can kind of help us see how, um, how things might affect, uh, you know, how sieges, urban warfare, and then if they devolve into sieges or if sieges emerge from within there, uh, what we can think about when we think about civilian harm and damage to, uh, to, to cities. And so, Abby, have you seen anything else uh, in your research that uh, any other data that you think is interesting or useful or helpful uh, to think about when we think about sieges uh, in particular? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I mean, Amos, I've been reading and following your writings on siege uh, f- for for a while now. I've always enjoyed chatting with you about it. I mean, I think uh, you, you're you're one of the, the few people coming out with uh, with uh, the good data to to reflect upon in terms of how, how often sieges or urban siege, particularly urban sieges are happening, uh, you know, in, on today's uh, modern battlefield. I mean, we... We've certainly, you know, from our experience at the ICSC, we've we've seen, um, you know, firsthand the impacts of, of siege uh, or urban sieges, you know, across, you know, in in every uh, in every region um, uh, in recent years. And so there's a lot of, you know, particular there's a lot of organisations that have published uh, the uh, data on the the civilian harm that's caused uh, from. Uh, siege and encirclement um, in in various uh, aspects. And one example coming immediately to mind was uh, PAX. I mean, PAX did a an interesting um, uh, published a lot. Uh, I think during uh, as part of the sieges in Syria. I think they called it Siege Watch. Um, but and there's a lot of other NGOs and and academics who who are sort of writing about some of the the, the humanitarian consequences, uh, which is very important uh, to bear in mind when when. Doing you know, sort of thinking about uh, you know, siege uh, and and how to conduct them in a way that best mitigates um, civilian harm. You know, you, you mentioned humanitarian consequences and the connection between that and, and the siege. And I think it's important to point out really quick. There's a couple of different types of sieges too. Generally speaking, broad broad brushstroke. And I think I'll uh, I'll, I'll mention these and then ask you what what different considerations you think. Uh, are associated with each one. And I'll, I'll run through the list really quick. So there's three um, that I've I've identified. And again, so there's the open siege. Uh, these are the sieges where there's an artery or some sort of artery left open to the outside world uh, from uh, the besieged area, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So on an intentional standpoint, you know, that may be because the besieger uh you know, is trying to adhere to IHL, right? You know, civilians need to be able to come and go from the besieged area, whereas the military, the rules are slightly different. So they've left left an artery open, right, on purpose. There's also situations where they may leave an artery open for intelligence gathering purposes, right? So they can see where, you know, military support uh, is coming and going from to the besieged actor within that siege, or they just don't have sufficient force to actually completely encircle. Uh, an opponent in a given uh, in a given locale. There's also the closed siege, right, which is full encirclement, complete isolation. There's no artery into or out of uh, the besieged area. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. 
until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And so the considerations there, you know, I think are the area under siege is relatively small or the force doing the siege is relatively large in relation to the area under siege. Right. And so those are two, I think the two most, the the two most dominant uh, views in most people's minds. Right. And I think a lot of times too, when they think about the siege is really, when you say that word and people say closed siege is what really comes to mind. But I think more often than not, the open siege is what reality really shows. And then, this is something that I've updated on my own uh, based off uh, just observation over the past couple of years is the idea of a loose siege. And I think a loose siege is uh, where you're surrounding an, an adversary is surrounded by fires, but not necessarily the physical and uh, physical encirclement or isolation of a city, but the city itself may be surrounded by sufficient fires that it creates a, a nominal siege in that general area, right? So it's surrounded by fires. Uh, there's free floating fires into that area, but the physical force may not be on the ground. And so as I was reflecting uh, a while back on this, the the uh, battle for Kiev at the beginning of the Russo-Ukrainian war was really what came to mind. Uh, essentially, it's you know an MLRS artillery, extended range uh, artillery type siege of an area where you didn't physically they didn't you know in this case the russians didn't physically control the shoulders and you know uh nodes into and out of kiev but they had the ability theoretically which ended up they they didn't really do a good job of doing this but they had the uh you know the ability to to dominate that area with fire so uh based off those definitions abby have you seen anything that's uh, that shows different uh humanitarian law considerations in either of those situations yeah i mean it's a uh it's a good question and i think probably it sort of illustrates some of the you know the ihl considerations uh, and then compare them with the scenarios that that you've um, spoken about just before. I think it's good to maybe you know, trace a little bit how the legal framework governing sieges has evolved uh, over the years. Um, you know, if we think back to the you know the Middle Ages, there really was uh, quite a, a rigid set of customs about how a fortified city was to be attacked. Uh, you know how that city might respond, and then what you know its inhabitants can expect if the city was captured, and then you know the besieged sort of city was was given certain degrees of immunity depending on the timing of which they capitulated. So, you know, the the quicker uh, they capitulated to a besieging army, then the greater immunity they received. But um, if a defending city itself refused an initial sort of summons to surrender, then no future mercy was guaranteed. So, you know, uh, much of the responsibility was on the defender and there was a high yep. price uh, paid for resistance. And, and back then, 
in those types of sieges, the harm to civilians, um, you know, starvation, bombardment and pillage uh, was really thought to be an incidental but but not an unlawful effect of warfare. Um, you know, in those complete isolation kind of, uh, you know, circumstances where, where they just simply can't leave and, and the, the siege is conducted indiscriminately. Now, if you fast forward a little bit to the 19th and 20th centuries, the situation from a legal perspective has hadn't improved much for civilians. You know, there were rules and customs of war that really still deemed it lawful to starve besieged civilians and combatants indiscriminately. Uh, we know at Nuremberg, uh, for example, uh, it, the court itself considered it an extreme but not unlawful measure to employ artillery against civilians in order to drive them back into a besieged area uh, mm -hmm. in order to hasten the surrender of an adversary. Um, now, today, that would clearly be a war crime because, yeah. you know, the law, the law has significantly changed, uh, you, know, you know, since then. And uh, it is clear that the type of siege warfare that uh, fails to discriminate between civilians and, and, enemy, and, and armed forces is effectively prohibited today. And that's because there has been a number of international law developments that have significantly restricted what belligerents can do during urban sieges. And, and I'm not going to go in, into too much detail on that because I, I might lose some of your listeners here, but I'll share <laughs> some more detailed uh, publications uh, with you in case you want to drop it into the show notes. But but I think the bottom line up front from a legal perspective is that, uh, you know, today sieges must be directed exclusively against an enemy's armed forces. And uh, IHL offers really important protections to civilians that are trapped in besieged areas. Um, and uh, you know, firstly, civilians must not be trapped in sieges and both parties must allow civilians to leave the besieged area um, when it is necessary to spare them from the effects of the hostilities themselves, but also when civilians lack goods that are essential for their survival. Uh, and that includes when a siege itself involves the use of starvation of combatants as a method of warfare. Yep. Uh, the second important point is that, um, you know, although temporary evacuations might be necessary and even legally required, uh, sieges must not be used to compel civilians to permanently uh, leave an area. And then um, in that sense, IHL offers really strong protections to civilians that are fleeing uh, or evacuating. So obviously, unlike the situation, uh, you know, well, Second World War, you know, you can't attack civilians. Uh, you can't launch artillery at them to keep them in a besieged area. Uh, you know, you, you have to um, ensure that any displacement of civilians that are fleeing or evacuating is only temporary. Uh, they have um, a right to voluntary return after the, um, you know, once the reasons for their uh, displacement um, cease to exist. Uh, and then once, you know, those folks that are displaced from urban areas or urban sieges, you know, they uh, all possible measures need to be taken to ensure that they receive, you know, satisfactory conditions of shelter and hygiene, safety uh, and nutrition uh, and that no family members are separated. And that's just a few examples. So, that's for, you know, and then the other um, key point is for civilians that I, for whatever reason, remain in besieged areas, uh, they, they must be protected. So, you know, belligerents, whether it be besieged or besieging forces, are bound by all of the rules that, you know, concern, you know, how you conduct your hostilities, particularly the targeting rules. And we can think of, you know, distinction, proportionality mm -hmm. and precautions being the main principles. But then in addition, you know, 
I, the, the law of armed conflict has important rules on starvation and on humanitarian relief that are designed uh, to ensure in combination that civilians are not deprived of supplies essential to their survival or they're made to starve. And so, um, and then there, of course, um, you know, I can go into de more detail on, on how humanitarian relief operations work and the rules apply there. But really, I guess the point I, I want to get at is that, you know, this idea that, you know, complete uh, isolation um, that, you know, in a siege is, um, you know, permissible just simply doesn't stand anymore. You know, civilians have to be able to leave a besieged area if they wish. Um, you have to, uh, you know, protect civilians that are trapped within besieged areas, uh, and that includes by allowing humanitarian relief in. So, um, you know, and it's, and that's a, you know, some particularly important messages that, that we emphasize here, because we do hear from some folks in militaries that, you know, isolation is, you know, the, the only priority when conducting a siege. But as I think you've said in, in one of your own pieces on this, you, know, you can't consider isolation in a vacuum. You know, the law has the law has evolved. Uh, you know, societal expectations um, has have evolved, and you know, we you have to ensure that civilians, um, you know, are, that are trapped in sieges or displaced from them are, are, are adequately protected. Yeah, I think that also ties back to something that you'd mentioned earlier when when you mentioned the the squeezing of the balloon and how we talk about that. You know, the the area under siege isn't necessarily just the only place that's affected by a siege. And uh, you can go back and look specifically for some some more near term examples. That, you know, the siege of Ilovysk during the uh, the Donbass campaign, that 2014-2015 time period in the Russo-Ukrainian War, where it wasn't just the area under siege, you know, like Ilovysk itself that was that was uh, smashed during that period, but the, the arteries inside and outside, not inside, the arteries, uh, the, the nose outside the city that supported operations inside the city from both sides, um, uh, were, were, were also attacked in that situation and caused a lot of damage there. And you saw the same thing at, uh, at both the Baltava, but also Donetsk airport, like the small town of Pisky or Pisky. Again, I'm, I'm horrible with, uh, pronouncing Ukrainian <laughs> words and town names, but, um, you know, it was a small town just outside, uh, Donetsk Airport, I think it was like two and a half miles away, but it was it changed hands several times itself uh, between the Russians and the Ukrainians because it was a support node uh, for the city. But then it was also or for the for the siege of Donetsk Airport. But it was also, um, a, you know, essentially a casualty casualty collection point um, for the Ukrainians as they would bring forces out of the city when they had the opportunity to. And so I think that that's something, uh, uh, to, to keep in mind when we talk about that idea of isolation of an area, but then also the effects of allowing the city to remain open or to have an artery that goes out, right. Uh, for civilians that there, there are also nefarious actors within the world, as we've seen some of the, uh, some of the heinous things that have occurred in Syria and other places, uh, throughout the conduct of war in the past, you know, 20 years, uh, where they may use that information also to, to continue targeting uh, civilians, even though it is illegal. And uh, I think that's just something to consider for really just about anybody that's uh, involved in this space, um, whether it's policymakers, you know, practitioners, whatnot, uh, analysts, that those those positions in and around 
sieges in which civilian populations are allowed to go to can also become points of contention based off the type of adversary that's involved in that that conflict. So I think that's that's something good to uh, to keep in mind as we think about that. And then the last point I want to make real quick is you know you talk about the uh, the rules of uh, the rules of sieges back in the uh, you know back when siege warfare was an actual form of warfare and it's you know tony king uh, i was doing research quite a while ago and i'd asked tony about you know some references on positional warfare and any anything he, he had on sieges and he recommended david chandler's the art of war in the age of uh, Mar- marlboro and that book goes through and details like the math that these you know like vauban and all these people during that time period uh, associated with how to conduct sieges and, you know, how Marlboro and his, his engineers had sieges. So it's it's certainly changed quite a bit, and the rules are, are vastly different than what they once were. Um, but anyway, with that, um, Abby, we're getting close on time here. Uh, is there anything else uh, that you want to mention that we haven't talked about as it pertains to urban warfare, sieges, protection of civilians, uh, IHL, anything? Yeah, I mean, I think really just to kind of stress, um, you know, the importance of you know, militaries uh, thinking about, you know, the reality of, uh, you know, um, contemporary siege and encirclement and in, in urban areas, because, you know, as you've said, I think time and time again, you know, they're there, there isn't enough, uh, you know, there, there aren't enough people talking and thinking about this um, in terms of, you know, how, why these things are conducted, you know, how they are conducted and how to best, you know, reduce um, the, the civilian harm that, that is often a, a cause for it. So, uh, and I think continuing to have those conversations uh, from a multidisciplinary perspective um, is, is really important, which, I re- which is why I really thought the Harvard workshop uh, a couple of years ago was so good. I think probably some of my just you know in terms of some of the things that uh, would be important for for the ICRC uh, in terms of you know trying to reduce the civilian harm caused by siege and encirclement is you know trying to find ways to better mitigate the risks of harm caused by you know bombardment and heavy explosive weapons in these contexts i mean there's a lot of work that's been done around this both you know the icrc has been been working uh, a lot on and advocating for for change in this respect of you know in, across a number of years we've seen um you know 83 states including the us make political commitments to try and address the the direct and indirect harm caused by these things in urban areas, um, you know, as well as, you know, the more recent, uh, the US uh, Civilian Harm uh, Mitigation Response Action Plan, that's that's also um, focuses on some of those issues. I, I think um, for, for the ICSC, I guess our two big, uh, you, know, you know, the two couple of things that we really are focusing on uh, in addition to, you know, the heavy explosive weapons piece is working on ensuring the resilience of essential services in the areas that, uh, you know, um, militaries are operating. I mean, protecting and restoring, maintaining essential services is something that um, the movement um, and in particular the, the ICRC and our national societies uh, have been focused on for a long time. Um, I said before, you know, the most essential uh, services um, that are out there you know, include, you know, drinking water, uh, you know, which you know, preparing that is, is complex. Um, you know, there's challenges because there is a tendency to centralize those things um you know you know emergency sources of water are not often available it's energy Mm -hmm. intensive 
um, and, and there's a lot of consumables and logistics that are required, you know, and we, I've yeah. talked about the importance of energy, sanitation and solid waste uh, as well, you know, uh, disruptions in those services has caused significant risk of um, infectious disease and, and, and long-lasting groundwater contamination. And so, you know, we talk about how all of these services are interdependent, which means that the collapse, you know, the failure of one can result in the collapse of many. Uh, and, you know, when systems like this fail, the scale of the consequences, you know, like I said earlier, they really do exceed anything that humanitarians alone um, can address. You know, I think yeah, the average length in which the ICSC, you know, the ICSC is often, uh, you know, when in every different, in every sort of conflict there is, but, you know, we don't leave after it finishes and we're there for, for decades. Um, our, the average length of time at which we're there is, you know, around 40 years or so. So, you know, we spend a long time trying to fix these essential service systems alongside partners um, and, and it's a very difficult task. And so what we do advocate is for, for militaries to do more to uh, anticipate, prevent, and respond to the impacts of their operations on essential service delivery. Uh, you know, there are a lot, there are improvements that can be made in terms of doctrine and planning. Um, you know, particularly from when it comes to targeting uh, is, is yep. a big, a big one there. Uh, but then equally, you know, we um, can't just focus on, you know, infrastructure itself. We've got to focus on um, the people and the consumables that are needed for essential service functioning. And then the absolute, you know, importance of preserving the humanitarian space for humanitarians, um, you know, also essential service personnel to get into areas where you need to restore essential services, um, which is a big challenge in besieged and encircled areas. So, yes, ensuring the resilience of essential services is one huge point and and then the other one that i'd like to say is probably you know militaries need to do more to to train and prepare for um organized civilian evacuations from urban areas in particular uh, besieged areas uh, because you know we've seen time and time again that those types of operations are fraught with dilemmas mm -hmm. uh, for both militaries and humanitarians alike and, and no two comp contexts are the same and things Things go wrong pretty easily when evacuations are badly organised, uh, when there are coordination issues, you know, when you know, when you don't have consent and agreement between the warring parties themselves causes a huge challenge. Yeah. And I think, you know, in that vein, militaries need to do more to understand the role that humanitarian actors might play at the various stages of an evacuation, you know, for and understand those organisations' red lines and conditions for involvement in those uh, in those operations. So, like, as a neutral and impartial humanitarian intermediary, the ICSC has, you know, facilitated safe passage of civilians out of besieged areas, you know. For a very long for, for a very long time you know quite recent most recently you know we've got examples from ukraine to, to syria um you know but they you know we've got examples dating back to the to the spanish civil war and you know these types of safe passage measures um you know they have to be well planned they have to be implemented with the agreement of the the parties of the conflict um, and you need to ensure the safety of those evacuees and humanitarian personnel that are involved because the operations, even when you do have agreement between the parties, are extremely complex and dangerous yeah. and they have major risks um, for the affected population and so they've got to be managed. Now, you know, that's they, they are challenges to plan and train for, of course, and, you know, we've seen through our work on urban warfare that, you know, 
many militaries don't have you know, some of them don't even have urban warfare doctrine and yep. the and the limited urban warfare doctrine that does exist doesn't say a lot about humanitarian or civilian harm risks and uh, this is something that we've been working on for a long time, engaging with uh, states and non-state armed groups on a particular ways in which they can, uh, you know, reduce the harm caused by their operations. And I think now, a couple of years ago now, we published a, a, a handbook for commanders on how to reduce civilian harm in urban warfare. And that that's sort of aimed at, you know, battalion to brigade level um, sort of planning, uh, you know, and it's sort of offering a number of suggestions on some of the humanitarian considerations that can be taken into account for training and planning and conduct. Uh, and, and it has a, a couple of good um, annexes on things like evacuations, humanitarian, working with humanitarian actors, uh, screening processes uh, that, you know, might be undertaken when civilians are fleeing from besieged areas. So really important um, considerations those types of oper operations during uh, siege and encirclement. And, and I guess we, one of the big messages is, I guess, or things that we'd like to sort of, you know, encourage uh, militaries to do is to think more about incorporating um, these considerations into into their uh, training and, and planning. A comment on that, and then I'm going to close up here with two other points. But the comment on what you just said is, I think part of uh, part of the challenge that militaries find too, at least in my own experience with with the doctrine I'm most familiar with, is that a you are correct. There is very little urban warfare, urban operations doctrine, and what is there is is in many cases it reflects a cultural bias against the realities of urban warfare. So it may talk about operations in an urban environment, but it may not talk about the types of things you're really going to have to do, right? So like sieges, right? We don't want to use that word because it's, it just sounds corny and old and out of fashion, right? But in reality, it's it's really a thing. And so there's a separation within doctrine of the reality of urban operations uh, and urban operations and how they're they're published. But then also I think the challenge is a lot of militaries view a lot of the things that you've talked about um, in terms of military forces and their relationship with the civilian population and non-combatants in urban operations. They view that as stability operations. And so because, um, as I was once told, uh, English-speaking people like to really break things into boxes and separate things into categories, um, there's not a good crossover between stability operations if you want to classify the things that you've identified, right, the, the mitigating civilian harm and all those things, moving uh, military forces, helping with the uh, extraction of civilian populations from areas under siege and, and, and things like that, you know, if that does fall into that way that stability operations have been characterized, um, then that term stability operations probably isn't useful, nor is that dichotomy between those different things useful. And it just needs to be batched together. And then within there, a lot of the discussions on stability operations are overly generic and don't place the thing, the the operation in context of an environment. Or if it does, it's all, you know, because I think a large part of uh, Western militaries specifically are, are bound by this 20 years of post 9-11 GWAT global war on terrorism bias that they have. So when they talk about that, it's in the context of some sort of insurgency, counterinsurgency dynamic and not necessarily uh, the rigorous uh, 
the rigorous operating environment of a urban warfare or, or an urban siege. And so I say all that to say uh, just my two closing points here. I think it's important to note that just because it doesn't sound cool, right? So just because sieges don't sound cool and they sound old and antiquated and like we're not looking forward and thinking futuristically about warfare, just because it doesn't sound cool doesn't mean we don't need to think about it and we don't need to understand it and we don't need to incorporate it, like you said, into doctrine and in planning. So uh, that's that's point number one. Point number two is uh, just because you don't think that you do it, despite evidence to the contrary in many cases, but and it, you being whomever, right? Pick your state, pick your military force, doesn't matter. Just because you don't think that you do it doesn't mean that you don't. Uh, also doesn't mean that you're not going to encounter it on the battlefield because odds are you probably will. Um, again, going back to that, that data set that I've been building out, like uh, I, w- I would argue you probably will encounter sieges. Uh, and specific, more importantly, not more importantly, but more frequently you'll see urban, urban warfare, but within that you'll, you'll certainly see sieges as well. And so just because you don't think that you do it or you don't think that it matters doesn't mean that you don't need to understand it which gets back to your point on doctrine and planning and getting those things incorporated across the board. So those are my two big takeaways, I think, for today is is that. And so, Abby, with that, uh, I just want to close up here and uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you um, uh, dialing in and meeting with me here. And, uh, again, thank you very much for your time. It's always enjoyable talking to you. I, I, I always learn a lot just because you have a different perspective on this than I do, so I appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for having me, Amos. I mean, yeah, right back at you. I, I really enjoy listening to your podcast um, and I, I love reading your stuff. You're teaching me something new every time. And, you know, just to you can fully agree with you on the points, the last couple of points you just made. I mean, the future, you know, the future of warfare uh, will be in urban areas and civilians are always going to be there. And, you know, like you say, I think in all of your episodes uh, or in a number of your episodes, um, you know, just because it's in doctrine or you know, it isn't always the reality that you face, um, you know, in uh, in the actual um, battle space. And so being realistic about your training um, uh, that that does incorporate civilian harm considerations is absolutely uh, key for us. All right. Well, with that, thanks, Abby. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on soon. Thanks, Amos. 